I'm so honored to get to open up God's Word with you uh, this morning. My, my son, Max, might be the strongest person that I know. Uh, a couple of years ago, he endured a ruptured appendix without any pain medication. And the only way that you would know that, uh, that he actually had any pain at all is if you asked him how he was doing. And when the, the nurses that were attending to him would ask him to rate his pain on a scale of 1 to 10, he would calmly say, a 10. <laughs> uh, but before you think that Mandy and I are terrible parents, uh, we, we were actively trying to get him into surgery uh, while this was happening. There was just a lot of waiting involved in every step along the way. See, after a couple of days of Max complaining about stomach pain, we called a friend of ours who advised us to take him to the ER. She believed that he probably had appendicitis. And so we did. We drove him to the ER, and we waited for a room to open up. And we waited for the doctor to come and, and take a look at him, and the doctor wanted to run some tests. And so we waited for the nurse to come and run those tests. And we waited for the results to come back and for the doctor to tell us what our next steps were going to be, and he believed that it likely was appendicitis, and we needed to get him to another hospital in town so that he could have surgery to have his appendix removed. And so we very quickly waited to be discharged, and then we drove across town to the other hospital that was waiting for us to, to show up to get him in the surgery right away, or so we thought. Uh, they were not waiting for us. They had computer issues, and so they did not expect us to come, and they couldn't even admit us into the hospital yet because uh, of their computer issues. They couldn't admit him in. And so we waited in that ER. And uh, if I can set the scene a little bit, it's probably about midnight at this time. We've been waiting in this process for about four or five hours. And this is during the COVID pandemic, so we're in this children's ER with a bunch of sick kids that likely have COVID, and they're touching all the things as kids will do. And our son is in pain with an appendix that is about to rupture. And in fact, he's in enough pain that he doesn't even want to sit on the chairs there. He would rather just lay on the floor of the ER waiting room. So it's at that point that my wife, Mandy, very politely uh, told the receptionist there that we would require a room for our son immediately. Uh, and they, they did. They, they pulled some strings and they got him into uh, a room with a bed so that, that he could lay down. And I don't know if you have ever experienced having a, a kid in pain when there's nothing you can do about it. There's no answers, there's no timeline for when the next thing is going to happen, but it's a very frustrating and helpless feeling. And it's at this point that we, we believe his appendix probably did rupture. He couldn't lay comfortably uh, on this bed, and, and this is when he started to tell the, the nurses that his pain was at a 10. But because they couldn't officially admit him into the hospital, they couldn't give him any sort of pain medication yet. And I, I don't blame the staff there at all. I know they were doing the best that they could with the bad situation, but I, 
I really thought Mandy was going to send me sneaking around the hospital to steal some morphine somewhere <laughs> for our son. I didn't have to do that. Uh, eventually, they were able to get him some pain medication, and he was able to sleep. But we did have to wait until the next morning for him to have surgery. And in the morning, the surgery was successful, and God even protected him from infection and other complications that typically happen with a ruptured appendix. But I think one of the hardest things that God asks us to do is to wait. Wait for a, a promotion or a job opportunity. Wait for the right spouse to come along or maybe the chance to be a parent. Wait for healing or a diagnosis or from relief from pain. To wait for an opportunity you've been hoping for or something that you believe God has even promised you, it just hasn't happened yet. Or maybe just simply waiting for something to change. Waiting is part of life at every age. So this morning we're going to take a look at what Scripture says about waiting because I, I believe that waiting is not useless. It's not just time to kill in between the things that we want to experience. I believe waiting has purpose. And even more, if there are things that we can do in our seasons of waiting that can help to accomplish that purpose. But I think it's not, not just possible for us to endure the waiting, but to grow and mature and thrive in it. So before we open up God's word, I just want to ask you to, to pray with me that, that God would speak to us this morning. Now, Father, you... You know every person who's in this room, and you know the circumstances of every life. God, you know exactly what we need to hear, so that I, I pray that, that by your Spirit, you would speak to each person through your Word. God, I pray that, that I would decrease and that you would increase. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Mark said in the video, we are going to be taking a look at the book of Psalms over the month of July. And uh, if you're new to the Bible, the book of Psalms is in the Old Testament. If you have a physical book, it's going to be somewhere right in the middle of your Bible. And Psalms is a collection of Hebrew poems and songs with a bunch of different authors, with the largest number being attributed to King David. And Psalms, when it was put together, it was designed to be the prayer book of God's people, the Israelites. It pointed them back to the importance of knowing Scripture and understanding God's law, and then pointed them forward to the hope of the Messiah that was to come. And there are many themes found within the Psalms, but most fall into the larger categories of either lament or praise. And I think it's important to notice that both are present in the Psalms, that Lament is an appropriate response to the evil and the bad things that happen to us. Yes, we're supposed to have joy and contentment in Christ, but it's absolutely possible to be content in Christ and still be grieved over the things that we experience in a fallen world. Today we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 13. It's a psalm written by King David. And though we're not told exactly what time period it is this takes place, we can estimate that 
It was written around the time where King Saul is chasing David through the wilderness. So he has defeated Goliath. He has been anointed as the future king of Israel. But that promise hasn't yet been fulfilled. So let me read through Psalm 13, and then we'll see what God wants to say to us through his word. Psalm 13, verse 1 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So there are kind of two sections here in this psalm. There's the, the first part that's the lament section, and the second part, that's the praise section. And I think there's a couple ways we can look at David's posture at the beginning of this psalm. At first glance, it seems to me that David is kind of complaining to God, maybe a little bit dramatic. How long, he asked four times, are you going to forget me forever? How long are you going to abandon me? How long are my enemies going to have it better than I do. Parents are familiar with these types of how long questions, right? How long do we have to wait? How long until we get there? How long until I can do what my friends can do? How long are they going to have it better than I do? And it usually comes with the same extreme language and exaggerations too, right? This is taking forever we're never going to get there. Everyone always gets better things than me. But all of us understand this feeling. It may seem a little childish, but we've all understood what it feels like when we're in a long season of waiting and it seems like nothing will ever change. This is why it's important to know the truth about who God is. You see, when we get discouraged or lonely, tired, anxious, it's easy to forget who God really is. David feels like he's forgotten and abandoned by God, but we know that's not true. So it's important for us to know the truth about who God is, but it's also important for us to constantly remind ourselves of that truth. And there are three things that I think we should always be reminding ourselves about God. One is we need to remember the attributes of God, that he is all-knowing, all-powerful. He is everywhere, always, and there is nothing that he can't do. Second, we need to remind ourselves about the character of God. He is loving, kind, compassionate, merciful, just, forgiving. He is faithful. He is good. And third, we need to remind ourselves about the promises of God. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will finish what he started. 
he will never forget us. You see, we have to remind ourselves of these things because it's so easy to forget. The situation that David was in, it was very real. He had very real problems, very real enemies. And the things that you're going through, the difficulties that you face, the things that you're waiting on are also very real. But we have to be careful not to let those things distort our perception of what the truth is. See, David has known God to be faithful. He, he knows God's promises, but it's easy to let our feelings overtake us and we forget the truth about who God is. This is why we can't trust our feelings to be the truth. We can't trust our feelings to be reality. I'm not saying that feelings or emotions are wrong or bad. I think they're a gift from God. I think they show us that we're made in his image. But we have to be careful. We have to hold our feelings up to the truth of God's word and who he says he is. You see, the, the world will tell you, just listen to how you feel. That's your truth. Just follow your heart. The scripture tells us in Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful above all else. Don't trust your heart. Your heart is sinful. We can't listen to our feelings to find the truth. Our feelings change. The truth does not. It's always the truth, no matter what we're going through or how we may feel about it. But we remind ourselves about the truth of who God is so that when we're walking through the valley, we remember that the all-powerful creator of the universe is there with us holding our hand, leading us on. And so we, we could look at this psalm and think that David is dramatically complaining to God. But I think there's another way that we could see this prayer. You see, David uses the question, how long? How long do I have to wait? And the intent of the phrase questions when the Lord is going to act, not if the Lord is going to act. So it could be that David isn't complaining, but rather he's reminding God of his promises. And maybe the, the David is saying, God, I, I know what you've said and I believe it, so why are we waiting? Let's go. David knows the love God has for his people. He knows the love that God has for him. He knows what God has promised him, so he knows that God doesn't want his enemies to triumph over him. His requests and concerns are in line with what God has already said. So it may be that David is just simply praying confidently according to God's will. And I think there's room here for either interpretation of David's posture here at the beginning of this psalm, and I'll, I'll tell you why here in just a moment. But the big question that we are asking this morning is, what should we do in our waiting? And as we look at this psalm, there are three actions that David takes that we can take ourselves, we can put into practice during our own seasons of waiting. And the first action David takes is that he starts with prayer. David prays. He takes his requests and concerns to the only one who can actually do anything about it. And this is why I don't think it matters much how we interpret David's attitude at the beginning of this psalm, because Either way, he's taking his request to God. 
One of the things I love about David's prayers in the Psalms, including this one, is that they're so honest. They include his emotions, his flaws, anger, disappointment, frustration, all of it's in there. Are you going to forget me forever? How long am I going to have to wait? Will you consider me? Will you answer me? Are you just going to let my enemies rejoice over my failure? Did you know that it's okay to be honest with God? It seems ridiculous to ask, but how often do we try to hide things in our prayers or put on a show like God doesn't see right through it? The one person we can safely be brutally honest with is God. For one thing, he, he already knows. He knows what you've done, what you've thought, what you're going to do. Whatever we try to hide from everybody else, he, he knows. But he's also big enough, strong enough, and wise enough to take it. Anything that we can throw at him, he can handle it. All the emotion, all the feeling, all the logic and reason that we can come up with, nothing scares him away or surprises him. He is the safest, best, and first place that we need to go with all of our concerns and needs. So then David goes on in his prayer and he says, Lord, consider me, answer me, enlighten my eyes. See, David, even though he feels forgotten, he continues to petition the Lord. He asks for wisdom. God, enlighten my eyes. Let me see as you see. Show me the way, guide my steps. If, if you don't lead me here, if you don't intervene, I'm heading toward disaster. So David starts with prayer. The second thing that David does while he waits is he remembers God's faithfulness. Verse 5 says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. And this is where a shift in tone happens in Psalm 13. Verses 1 through 4 have been lament, crying out to God, asking him to listen. And then verse 5, it's kind of like the sun starts to, to show over the horizon, right? A little bit of light starts to break through, and it quickly shifts the posture of David's heart to praise and to gratitude. You see, David does exactly what we talked about earlier. He holds his feelings up to the truth about who God says he is. It feels like you've forgotten me. It, it feels like you're not listening. You're not hearing me. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. I'm tired. I don't want to wait anymore. But I've trusted you before. You have come through, and I will trust you again. See, this is written in the past tense. I have trusted. The end of verse 6 says, he has dealt bountifully with me. David is going back to what God has already done. He's remembering God's faithfulness. And it's not just, it's not just God's faithfulness in general. He's remembering God's personal and specific faithfulness to David. He says, 
he has dealt bountifully with me. That means he's, he's been generous with me. David can look back to when he was a teenage shepherd. And God plucked him out of obscurity to defeat Goliath and to be anointed the future king of Israel. He, he can look back and say, God has been generous and merciful to me in the past. And so I will trust him to be faithful again now. God is faithful. And when we remember that he is faithful, it leads us to the third action that we can take, and that is worship. David started with prayer, he remembered God's faithfulness, and then he worshiped. Verse 5 says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Suddenly there's a shift in, in the tone of this prayer. It's completely changed. Right? It's gone from confusion and complaining to certainty and celebration. My heart shall rejoice. I will sing. David has worked his way through this process and he's gone from sorrow to joy, from lament to praise. See, worship has a way of changing our focus. And I'm not just talking about music here, though David does mention singing. When we worship something, we're ascribing worth to it. We're giving it all of our attention. And so when we worship God, we're ascribing worth and value and honor and respect to a God who is infinitely worthy and giving him all of our attention. And when you do that, you can't tell, help but take your eyes off of yourself and place them on the object of your worship. You see, when we, when we get stuck with our eyes on our circumstances, they get overwhelming. It's too big, it's too dark. But when we lift our eyes to Jesus, we focus on him and how incredible he is, we realize that he is bigger and stronger than anything that we may face in this world. When it comes to worship, I, I love the metaphor of putting on a coat in bad weather. So when it's, when it's raining, cold, maybe snowing a little here sometimes, and you want to go out in the weather, what do you do? You put on a coat. Now, does the, the coat do anything to change the weather, to stop the rain, to stop the snow? No. It doesn't change the weather. What does it change? It changes you. It changes you in the weather. The coat changes your ability to weather the storm. See, when... We worship Jesus and focus on him and put him in his proper place. It's like putting on a coat. Worship is the way that we clothe ourselves in a fallen world. Worship is the way that we take our eyes off of our problems and put them onto Jesus and tell him that, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know that you're in control. I know that you're good, and so I trust you. And suddenly the very same problems and circumstances that had you defeated yesterday are the places where you can flourish and thrive today. Not because your situation has changed at all, but because your focus has. You see, David's situation didn't change between verse 4 and 5. 
He's still waiting on God, still wanting him to move. But his focus changed, and that made all the difference. So what can we do in our seasons of waiting? Well, we can start with prayer. We can remember God's faithfulness. And that's going to lead us to worship. Now, I think it's important to note here that this is not a prescription for getting out of waiting. The point isn't to do these things and magically your waiting time will be reduced by 50%. The point isn't even to get through the waiting as fast as possible. See, I believe there's a deeper meaning and purpose for our waiting. It develops our character and it makes us more dependent on God. Many of you are familiar with the verse in James chapter 1 that says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be made mature and complete, not lacking anything. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. You see, what is waiting if not the testing of our faith? Will we allow it to produce the perseverance and character that God desires for us? Will we say like David that I have trusted in your steadfast love? I have known you to be faithful in the past, and so I will trust you to be faithful again now. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So if, as we wait, we will commune with God in prayer, We'll remind ourselves of his faithfulness. We'll turn our focus toward him in worship. Then our inner selves will be renewed day by day. So it's not that we grow weary and weak in our waiting. But in fact, we grow stronger, more mature, more complete, renewed, and sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. For the followers of Jesus, we don't get weary in our waiting. We get ready. You see, it's the Apostle Paul who writes these words in 2 Corinthians. He's no stranger to persecution, affliction, waiting on God. He was threatened, ridiculed, 
kidnapped, arrested, beaten, shipwrecked, and if that's not enough, he was bitten by a snake. Yet he writes this light and momentary affliction. Considering all that he lived through, how can he describe his problems that way? I don't know about you, but that's not how I usually describe my problems. I don't look at the world around me and see depression, addiction, the loss of a job, the loss of a relationship, sickness, pain, death, as light and momentary. But that's exactly what Paul is saying here. So how can he say that? because of where he's placed his focus. He's not focused on the problems in front of him. He's focused on the Savior and the mission that he's been called to. He says these afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Does that sound meaningless to you? Your waiting is not in vain. Your suffering is not meaningless. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Trust. Press on. Persevere. So that your character will be developed your faith will be renewed and your soul will find rest in Jesus Christ. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 